Welcome to the We Go Places podcast, where we catch up with WeGo grads who share the story of the journey to their unique careers. I'm your host, Brian Turnbaugh, English teacher at WeGo since 2001, and you just heard new music from Andy Georgieff, class of 2022. Today, we talk to Maddie Dahl, class of 2011, illustrator and fabricator for Blue Rhino Studio in Minneapolis. Maddie will share with us how her childhood fascination with dinosaurs and drawing set her on a path to make incredible sculptures of natural art for museums all over the world. Be sure to find links to Maddie's work on the episode page or at Maddie Dahl on Instagram, M-A-D-D-Y-D-A-H-L on Instagram. Joining us today from the class of 2011 is Maddie Dahl. Maddie, what do you do? Uh, I work as an exhibit artist uh, at Blue Rhino Studio in Minneapolis, Minnesota. So, Maddie, when did you kind of begin this p- path to to continue this this really unique career in art? Oh gosh, you know it's it's kind of hard to say when it started because I think I've always had a passion for prehistoric animals and dinosaurs, but I think I really started to gear myself towards that career probably in college. Um, I think around sophomore or junior year, I started to twist every single one of my illustration assignments to be some kind of scientific illustration. Um, And then I ended up having a, you do a big thesis at the end of your college education to prove that you have a place in an industry and you have a place in the art world. And mine ended up being a a museum exhibit. And um, that was kind of it. And so I'm still doing the exact same thing I was doing (laughs) in college. That's, That's so brilliant. Now, where did you go to school? Uh, I went to school at the Milwaukee Institute of Art and Design, and I majored in illustration, and then I minored in um, communication design and biology. How did you choose that school? Of all the kind of design schools, uh, what was it about that particular program that um, spoke to you most? Gosh, I think um, part of it was I kind of just fell in love with Milwaukee when I went and visited. Um, I love the proximity to home, but the program itself um, just seemed really well-rounded, and they had um, uh, they had a lot of professionals that would come in and work with the students. So you got a taste of the outside world and what it would be like to freelance or to work in, um, you know, a, a community or, um, gosh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, for like a big company like Kohl's or something as you were still in school. So by the time we graduated, uh, transitioning into professional life, at least for me, almost felt seamless. Some people who went to illustrate at big companies started before they even graduating, before they even graduated. Um, So I think that was the big draw was that kind of proximity to your actual life after college, if that makes sense. What was some of the coursework that you had that really kind of took your confidence and skill set to the next level? 
Um, it was a lot of drawing, as you can imagine. We had a lot of figure drawing classes. And then on top of that, we had um, illustration classes where they taught you not only about the industry, but then you had you were given an assignment every two weeks like you would get from a um, from a client. Um, so you got kind of the very traditional uh, figure drawing where you showed up with like your sketchbook and charcoal, you know, and you had to sketch a figure um, all the way to digital art or fantasy art. So you got a taste of uh, um, concept art or, you know, they kind of touched on editorial work. Like they kind of touched on every corner of the illustration world. Um, but then I kind of branched off and did a double minor in communication design, which is um, graphic design. It's essentially the same thing. So we designed packaging for, you know, cereal or we did magazine articles, that type of thing. And then my biology coursework was exactly that. It wasn't it wasn't art based at all. It was straight up evolution ecology. Um, I did a course on limnology, which is we went way up north and we dug around in lakes for specimens and came back to a cabin and looked under microscopes. And that had nothing to do with art at all. So it was kind of a wide array from fine arts to pretty much straight up academia. That's really cool that you were able to kind of get into the field and find like a, a muse from nature. Were there any other types of travel involved or kind of field work that you did while you were at school? There were. I did um, the one course that I did, Liminology, that was traveling and that was uh, going out and doing field work. Um, and then I tagged along on a couple others. So that was a winter course that I went on all the way up in northern Wisconsin in the middle of a polar vortex, digging through the ice, um, which was definitely character building. And um, then I tagged along to one in the summer, too. So I didn't participate in that one, um, but I was, you know, kind of with the TAs the whole time. So I, you know, had a secondhand experience through the other students with that one. So when did you start kind of tilting towards more of the reptilian and kind of dinosaur like when when did you when were you able to kind of make that particular push as that being maybe more of your your focus man i've always loved dinosaurs i mean i had you know the stereotypical little plastic figures when i was in grade school i've just always always loved them and i think when i was in high school it went away for a little bit you know as you do when you're a high school student you're busy socializing and kind of starting to build your own kind of identity in life. So it faded away for a little bit. And then I got back into college and I got into my biology coursework. And I was like, oh man, I used to really love dinosaurs. Let's get back into this. Um, and I think it was the evolution class that I had my sophomore year that really reminded me of the passion that I had for that particular subject. Um, and I remember uh, doing um, AP biology with uh, Mrs. Ferrero and how much I enjoyed doing that. And it just seemed to click and everything kind of came back. And I was like, all right, well, you know, let's start. I think I want to get into scientific illustration. Um, let's start gearing everything back towards prehistoric life. And, uh, you know, I have a soft spot for all prehistoric life, mammoths, uh, ice age animals. But I think the passion for dinosaurs has kind of always been there. So... That's so, that's so great. Now, so you, you graduate 
from uh, the Milwaukee School. Say, is the Milwaukee School of Engineering Design? I'm confused. Uh, the Milwaukee Institute of Art and Design, just Myad, we call okay, it. So yeah, so the Milwaukee. Okay, and so you graduate from Milwaukee, and then uh, so how did you then? What was your first job out of school? Actually, um, well, I'm kind of proud of this, so I'll give you the whole story. Uh, <laughs> like I mentioned before, we um, do our thesis senior year, and the last week of. Uh, your classes there before you graduate is this big senior show. It's a really big deal. It's the biggest uh, gallery night in the whole state of Wisconsin. Um, and professionals, you can invite professionals to come and see you. And um, the exhibit folks at the Milwaukee Public Museum were invited by another student who was also interested in taxidermy and exhibit work. Um, and I was the first. I was the first gallery space right inside the main gallery. Um, cause I had a big show. I did a whole exhibit space. So I had like 20 feet of wall space. Um, and they, within 15 minutes, the show opened at four and within 15 or 20 minutes, they had come over to me and handed me a business card. Um, oh. and I think about two weeks later, they sent me an application. I went in for an interview a week or so after that. And I had a job about at the Milwaukee public museum in the exhibits department about a month later. So that was my first real professional job. And I just like, totally fell in love with it. Like that was it. I'm like, this is it. I'm in the museum industry forever. <laughs> How do you begin the process of selecting the works for that final exhibit? And how is that separate from maybe your thesis? Um, the final works for a museum exhibit? Yeah, the one that you that you put on your, uh, your senior year. Oh, well, so you begin uh, at the beginning of your senior year, you choose a topic. Um, and mine was fossil restoration. So what can you learn from a fossil? Um, and I specifically chose Chinese fossils, not to get too technical about it, but those particular fossils uh, in in uh, northeastern China, there a lot of feathered dinosaurs come from there. And it's my favorite little pocket of evolution is the transition between bird and dinosaur. And in that specific part of China, um, it's the Liaoning province. It's called the J-hole biota is what this plot of fossil rich land is called. A lot of these animals died during a volcanic explosion. So it's covered, they're covered in ash and it just makes for these beautiful, gorgeous fossils, so much so that you can see the individual barbules on the feathers of these animals. Um, so I picked that as my topic and I wanted to reconstruct these since they almost felt like, you know, they were living, breathing animals in these rocks. I wanted to make them 3D and I wanted to put them in their environment. And then I wanted to, you know, flesh out the exhibit and do signage. Um, and then I also did a stop motion animation of, you know, explaining the feathers of one of the one of the dinosaurs. Um, and then you kind of just pick that as your main topic and then you expand on it. So we had a whole sketchbook with all different kind of iterations we could do based on this one topic. Um, so I sketched out every possible idea I could derive from fossil restoration of feathered dinosaurs. Um, and I ended up with three species of dinosaurs with different feathers that were important in bird evolution in different ways. Um, and then kind of the illustration part takes over from there. It's like, all right, so you want to do backgrounds for these critters. What's going to be in the backgrounds? What's your composition going to look like? What are your colors going to be? Um, and then the graphic design comes in at the very end. How are you going to display this? And there was other things involved too. And like um, just, you know, 
museums have a whole guideline of how to build an exhibit. Uh, if you're doing signage, how many words should you use per sign? Um, what kind of language should you use? What kind of grade level should you write for? Um, so I had to do all that kind of research too. So I guess to answer your question, um, it's a whole you know semester long process choosing those final pieces. Um, but I had a pretty good idea of what I wanted to do right away. How long does it take to even make one of those pieces that you were talking about? Oh, gosh. Well, um, so it's if you were to ask me this back when I was a senior in college, I would say an entire semester just to do one of those figures. But if you were to ask me now, I would say a couple weeks um, just because the skill level is different. But when I was doing those particular sculptures, it was the first time I'd ever tried sculpting. So I think I was kind of sneaky and I started over the summer before senior year. <laughs> and I started trying to sculpt a little bit and because I knew I wanted to do something with dinosaurs. Um, so I think those three sculptures, technically there was four. I never told my illustration teachers this, but I nicked one of them at the end because I didn't finish. Um, <laughs> but those three took me, mm, I want to say the whole year. I think the whole year, because they all had individual feathers that were either sculpted or <laughs> glued on them at the end. <laughs> so it's interesting, though, that you said that there was such a, a learning curve where it's something that might have taken a semester could now be um, fashioned mm -hmm. in two weeks. And, but that's because the skill level has been so amplified, augmented in such a way. Was that something that happened... I, I would I would imagine it's kind of like a, a hockey stick, right? Where in a graph, where it kind of, or or was it incremental, or was there like a, a leap in terms of getting to that level of competency and and honing that particular skill uh, to 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 collapse that space of creation? That's a really good question. Um, I'm trying to think over the past you know six years how that's worked out. It almost feels like an exponential graph. Um, because in the beginning, it's there's so many things you have to consider if you're making a clay sculpture like I was. What kind of materials are you going to pick? How are you going to paint this? How are you going to make the texture? How are you going to make the armature so the thing can stand up on its own? I remember when I initially, when I first started, I had no idea how to create like a wire armature, which is generally, it's basically the skeleton for your sculpture. So it's not falling on its face and you're ruining your sculpture every time you step away from it. Um, and... So I remember really struggling with that and just just being kind of nervous and like you're using new tools for the first time. And I think that skill level slowly crept up and I did more of it when I was at the Milwaukee Public Museum. I worked on some life-size uh, dromaeosaurs, which are like your Velociraptor and Deinonychus, um, the bigger guys, the Jurassic Park guys. Um, <laughs> and now I, when I started at Blue Rhino almost four years ago, I was still pretty slow. I was still learning, but if I was given that assignment today, be, just because of the fast paced environment and how just the sheer volume of work that we grind through at Blue Rhino, because we just, we just move fast. We have a lot of clients. Um, I could do a sculpture like that in two weeks. You know, it's just something I could do in my sleep now. So I think it took a really long time to get to that point, but it felt like at one point a year or two ago, those kind of things just like clicked. And now it's like, oh, you want me to do a, 
little feathered dinosaur? Sure. Cool. I'll have the armature done by the end of the day. You know, I'll have clay slapped onto it by the end of tomorrow. And you can send pictures to the client in a week. Maybe to kind of draw on our, our metaphor of all things feathered mm-hmm. in, that, in that, in that description, you were talking about, uh, um, you know, you're, you're an illustrator and a fabricator. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if one informs the other or does is is the chicken before the egg in terms of your creativity um something where does the illustration happen first or do you begin to kind of tinker around with the medium of fabrication i was wondering how that whole process kind of evolves uh as you begin to create something sure i for me personally it started with illustration and then it went to sculpture and i definitely do both now i am now one of two illustrators at work you know my my boss grabs me all the time for drawing um but we've we've actually had this discussion amongst like the artists at work um it sometimes people sometimes have a hard time thinking in a 2d fashion it's almost more difficult than a 3d fashion because when you're drawing you have to picture whatever it is you're going to put on paper in a 3D form in your head, and then you have to figure out how to make it two-dimensional. So a lot of us at work who work in 2D a lot are also really good sculptors because you're skipping that last step of making the 3D form 2D, if that you know kind of makes sense. Um, and it's, it's a little bit easier, but we do have one of our sculptors at work uh, he's fantastic. He's got to be, he's got to be the best animal sculptor in the country. Like I just, he's, he's just so, so good at what he does, but he can't draw. He can't take that 3d form and make it 2d. So, um, the process for some of us is to draw out that 2d image first and turn it into a 3d sculpture so the image or the illustration typically comes first for those people they get used to drawing first and then they start sculpting um but for some people uh like jim that sculptor who can't draw um they kind of go straight to sculpting so it kind of depends sometimes the illustration informs the sculpting uh but sometimes it just doesn't and some you know sometimes it just depends on how you can visualize things i think yeah, and I was I just maybe this might be going back a, a little bit, but I was wondering, like, when did you know that you could do what you do? Like, I mean, obviously, art is a a craft that needs to be honed, but like, when did you know, like, oh, I can actually find the shadow of a thumb or you know the crease in an eye, where you know most people are still really struggling with just putting fingers on a stick figure. Like, when did you? kind of realized that you you had a mind that could render things in those spaces 2d 3d and all of that when when did you kind of say that you may have had kind of a uh, a, a skill set for that or a kind of a, a a natural gift for it I think it started I think it started in grade school I used to draw on my homework all the time which my second grade teacher really loved um, but my parents joke all the time that they knew I was going to art school you know, before I was in fourth grade. Um, I think for a lot of us that work in the art field, it's something that's intrinsically ourselves. It's like something you kind of can't separate from who you are. So it starts so early. So it's not even something that you realize like, oh, hey, I can draw. It's um, just kind of something that you're, 
and I, I'm, you know, I'm not speaking for everyone. I'm just speaking for a couple of artists that I know and just for myself, um, is that you start really early, you know, so early that you kind of don't realize that you're honing a skill until you get into, you know, grade school or high school and someone tells you, hey, you're not too bad at that. Um, and I think that's like, oh, maybe I'm not too bad at this. Maybe I go to school for this and turn it into a career, you know. But for me personally, it's it's always been a big part of my life. And I don't think there was ever that one moment. Um, you know, it's kind of just like, well, this is this is the skill I was given. This is uh, this is what I'm going to turn into my career. So your first job was at the Milwaukee Museum. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering, like, so if you could maybe, like, so your first day there, how do you know what to work on? Like, so, like, the artist is given a particular job to do. You have to create something. So I was wondering what was the flow of work uh, as it was it came to you uh, with your first job? Mm. Okay. So when I started at the Milwaukee Public Museum, um, I started in um, kind of exhibit refreshing and repair. So I was the person who took care of the exhibit. So I wasn't trusted to make things or fabricate things for a while. I worked with a team of artists. So uh, my department was 99% folks that had been there for 35 or 40 years and started in like the 80s. (laughs) So they were, there was four levels of artists and they were all at the very top. And then there was you know, me who was 30 years younger and I was coming in and I was just kind of learning from these guys. Uh, so they would teach me and particularly one of my coworkers, who was an older man named Craig, he was a really good sculptor who had been sculpting at the museum just for like decades. So a couple times a week, he would take me and show me a new skill. But in the meantime, before I was trusted with projects, I was down on the floor kind of scraping gum and um, patching up wooden cases that were scratched and sweeping footprints out of the dioramas when kids got into them. And kind of slowly you learn about materials like, oh, you're going to patch up this little part of this exhibit. Okay, you use this. And this is how we painted this initially. So this is how you're going to paint this to repair it. So it started out really small with just like patching up things that already existed. And then eventually it came time for a revamp. So we revamped an exhibit called the Streets of Old Milwaukee, which is um, it's this big exhibit that's a recreation of Victorian Milwaukee. So it's, you can walk through it. It's just like a city street at nighttime. It's got all these building facades. And I think my first year there, we started to refresh that. And then I was trusted with refinishing and repainting banisters and, you know, storefronts and stuff. So uh, I think that was the first art project I was kind of trusted with. And that's when I started to get pulled in more and more like, oh, can you illustrate this? You know, I'll show you how to do this little piece of exhibitry. This is how we take care of artifacts when you're working around them. You know, that's how we handle these kind of things. So initially I was just trusted with cleaning. And then within a couple of years, uh, I was working with a taxidermist and we were um, making dinosaurs out of uh, like javelina, which is a type of wild pig down south, javelina hides and re-sculpting the faces and repainting the faces. So uh, it was really interesting. It was a really great time. I really loved it there. (laughs) 
So, I mean, it's interesting that, you know, that you really, it's, it's the the kind of like you put your time in and kind of earn the trust. It's interesting that you had that kind of, you had to earn your stripes really to kind of make your way up. Uh, And, and then was given such latitude to be able to do things uh, there. Now, Mm -hmm. then you, so then what was the opportunity to go to uh, the the new uh, blue line, blue rhinoceros studios? Um, How did you get that opportunity? (laughs) Um, Blue Rhino Studios. So it's it's a little bit of a sad story. It ended up working out for me in the end. Um, so one of the big parts about working for a museum, and particularly the Milwaukee Public Museum, is that uh, money's always tight. You know, it's a government-owned institution. Um, we rely on we relied on donors a lot, and the bit of government money that we got every year, and we had just hit a really hard financial patch. Um, and you know, uh, my coworkers and I had been nervous in our department since I got there that we were one of the last in-house exhibit teams in the country. It's kind of something that doesn't exist a lot in natural history museums anymore. Uh, back in the day, they used to have... <clears throat> a taxidermist or a team of taxidermists and they would have someone that exclusively made plants, someone that exclusively, you know, did ground forms and, you know, just a team of artists. And we were kind of the last group in the country. So we had an inkling that, you know, it was, that was going to happen. We were going to be let go at some point. Um, and just, I came to work one day and my boss said, I want to talk to you before the end of the day. And I was like, all right. Uh, this can't be good. I don't like this, but sure. And people had been, you know, whispering all day. And I went to see my boss at the end of the day. And he's like, so you haven't lost your job, but I have. And everybody except for the lighting person has lost their job. So our department kind of got axed. So I was, I still had my job and my other coworker, Amelia, one of the other artists um, who I shared a studio with, uh, kept his job, but it had been kind of been made redundant. So instead of creating these awesome in-house exhibits and refurbishing, you know, old exhibits, which was really exciting for us and doing new projects and creating new things, we, you know, it's, it's unfortunate, but it had kind of been reduced to just maintaining what we had. And we didn't really have any money at all to refurbish things just because they were going through financial struggles. So my old boss actually went to, um, there's this big museum conference every year, the American Alliance of Museums, and it's where everybody museum related gets together in one place. And uh, he had ended up, he ended up meeting my current boss, Tim, and uh, the sculptor Jim at Blue Rhino. Um, And I had admired those guys years beforehand. Part of my thesis was kind of based around the stuff that Blue Rhino did. So I was a little bit of a fangirl. Um, And uh, I, you know, my boss came back and he was, because they were still there for a couple weeks. He came back and he was like, so I met, you know, a couple people at AAM and I gave them your information. I hope that's okay. Um, And I was like, sure. Sounds good. You know, I didn't really, I still didn't want to leave MPM, but I knew that there wasn't really a future there for me anymore. And then I think within a week, I got an email from my current boss and I got these pictures of uh, these pterosaurs that they were building, these gigantic pterosaurs. And I just remember being so excited. I like was fangirling and I was kind of starstruck and I was like, I can't believe 
they're contacting me. <laughs> and I remember calling my mom and just being like, I think I'm moving to Minneapolis. And she was like, absolutely not. And I was like, no, I have to do this. And um, that was in May. And by July, I had accepted a job up there. And by September, I was working. So that's they kind of had hunted me a little bit. You said you guys are really busy with a lot of orders. So who are the clients uh, for Blue Rhino? The clients, the main clients now, uh, Blue Rhino used to be a lot more diverse in what they accepted. For instance, they used to do, uh, I think, Wizards of the Coast, which is like a big convention down south every year. So they used to make like giant superhero statues and, uh, you know, giant 20-sided dice um, for conventions, which is kind of fun. But then I think about 10 years ago, Uh, they kind of just shifted over to natural history. So what we do now is almost exclusively museums, uh, natural history museums, and nature centers, um, and state parks. We've done a couple of national parks as well. Um, But it's all, you know, I, we just, well, not we, I wasn't there yet. But uh, the studio kind of collectively decided that they wanted to focus on um, education, which is it's just the cornerstone of everything we do because um, it's, it's rewarding and you feel like you can do a lot of good. Uh, but so our main clients now are museums and nature centers. I was wondering, you know, and I'm, I'll make sure that I, I have a link to your Instagram page uh, in the episode notes. But I mean, so these these works that you have are just so amazing. And I was wondering, for example, the one that you were working on, which was the T-Rex. Mm-hmm. What would well, how long would so if, if we were to kind of go through the the process of fabricating that, would it, like how long was would it take? what are the materials that you use and then mm-hmm. how many people would consist of the team that is working on something like that? Sure. Um, man, I think, so I'm going to use Sue the T-Rex specifically, um, which is the, the model that was made for the field museum in Chicago. Um, so we started that project. There was, you know, kind of a little bit of buzz that we might do that project I want to say maybe a year and a half before it was due. Um, We got kind of delayed with COVID. So, you know, we had to be out of the studio for about five weeks. And then um, delivery changed uh, in 2020 because of the pandemic. So that timeline is a little bit different from what it might be. But from initial conception to Sue's being disassembled and shipped out of the shop, I want to say... It was about a year and a half. Um, There's a big, long process at the beginning where uh, Tim and the main artist, again, Jim, go back and forth with the clients, in this case, uh, the exhibit director at the Field Museum, go back and forth um, on the science, uh, how they want it to look, all the aspects of like, is this going to be a touchable thing? Are guests going to be able to walk right up to it? You know, because that influences what kind of materials we use. Um, and so there's all this planning and that usually takes a long time. That usually takes months, but it depends on the museum a little bit. We work with the field museum a lot, so it's a little bit of a speedier process. And then Jim will start what is called a maquette and it's just a scaled down version of what the final product is going to be. He starts, we just call them blob models. He just starts with like just a tangle of like wires and he just blobs 
you know, hot clay onto it to just give a general silhouette. Like this is what it could look like. And once the client gives the okay, he does a big one inch scale model. So we had, um, Sue ended up being 40 feet long. So the maquette that he made was 40 inches long. It was this big, you know, three foot over three foot thing. That was an exact miniature of what Sue was going to be, um, when it was finished. And then, so that model gets sent out and someone, um, 3D models it and we get it back in styrofoam a few weeks later. So we get these big chunks of dinosaur, uh, that have to be pieced together like a puzzle. And then, um, there's parts of the process that we, I have been told that we can't talk about. So some of it is secret. Uh, <laughs> understood, understood. Proprietary, I know. Yeah, that's proprietary. Most of it is um, what the construction guys do with the steel. So I'm not privy to that. So I think I can talk about this part. But then it ends up uh, getting fiberglassed, which is where I start to come in and where the other artists uh, – the shop is kind of split in two into construction people and artists, but we're all kind of – you know, artists in a certain way. Um, but the, the people who do the finishing work, the sculpting and all that final, final touches come in at the fiberglass stage and it's sheets of fabric coated in resin. Um, and it's just two weeks. I think we, it took us two weeks to fiberglass Sue of just brushing this resin onto fabric and their long, hot days. And, you know, it's super itchy stuff. A lot of people end up being allergic to it. So it's not a super pleasant process, but at the end you have this really nice, extremely durable, hard shell, really lightweight, and it's really the best, you know, material to use. Uh, and then, um, then what we do after that stage is done is the head artist will come in and do all the fine details on the face. Uh, my coworker, Eric painted hand painted custom glass eyes that, you know, went in the eye sockets. The cool part about Sue was that we customized every single detail. We sculpted all of the skin pads, which started months before the final sculpture even came in. So every single little scale that's on her, all you know, they're like two millimeters wide. They were hand sculpted <laughs> um, and turned into like giant stamps and pressed on her. And uh, the eyes were hand painted and then, you know, the fun part for me was that we got to decide what the inside of a T-Rex's mouth looked like. And that job was kind of handed off to me. Um, you know, it had to be approved by scientists, of course, but we kind of got to decide that. Uh, so that was fun. And then once all that final texture is on, she's got all her scales. Uh, she's got all her teeth in her eyes. Then we can start painting. Um, which is when the animal really kind of starts to come to life. And then you're like, oh man, this could be, you know, this looks like a real animal. And you push it and pull it to make it look fleshy in some places and hard and keratinous in some places. You know, you put a little bit of, uh, we just call it special juice by the eyes and the nose to make it, you know, look a little bit shiny, um, stuff like that. So, I think that answers your question. I got a little. No, you, and you answered you answered three more that I had in there oh, in that response. Yeah. It was perfect. <laughs> it was great. And I, I want to say, like you were talking about the 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 skin and the dimensions of it. It was at the picture on Instagram where uh, you had a penny on top of the scales of everything to kind of show just how 
how how uniquely and how delicate some of the the rendering of, of that is. is was that, am I thinking of this right picture of that? Yeah, yeah. I yeah, think I I I spent months doing dinosaur skin because as soon as we did Sue, we just got dinosaur after dinosaur after dinosaur after <laughs> dinosaur. So I've done ankylosaur skin. I've done hadrosaur skin. I've done multiple types of T Rex skin at this point. So I just spent months doing uh, dinosaur skin, and I think there's another one on there too with that. Um, but yeah, I mean the, it, it's ultimately a blessing, but also a little bit of a curse that we have these, uh, fossils. They're called dinosaur mummies when the skin is fossilized. So you get like skin texture, um, that's fossilized. So we know in certain parts of a T-Rex exactly what the scales looked like, which means there's not a whole lot of room for artistic, um, you know, there's not a lot of artistic wiggle room. So one of us, which was me in this case, has to kind of sit there with this big board of clay and hand sculpt, you know, those scales that are two millimeters across. And you have to, I think it took me like, I think it took me four weeks. Kind of zen, but when you're on your fourth week of sculpting those tiny scales... <laughs> You're starting to see them when you close your eyes at night. Um, I believe it. <laughs> but it's, it's worth it because then you send off this product and, you know, not to not to brag, but maybe a little bit, you know, you know that that sculpture, that model that you send out is the most scientifically accurate represent, representation of a T-Rex in the whole world. Because everything right down to those teeny tiny little, you know, scales are accurate. How do you send it off? Do you have to take it apart again? Or is it just in a massive container that you know takes 12 trucks to kind of close off streets to get there from, <laughs> from uh, Minneapolis to Chicago in this case? Uh, yes and yes. Um, that is, we have a person at the shop. We have a couple people at the shop who deal with all that. So they have the, um, the 3D scans of all the models and they fit it, you know, they have the dimensions of a truck and they use Google or they use SketchUp, uh, which is a, you know, a 3d like architecture program to kind of uh, just fit all those pieces and like how many trucks it's going to take and exactly how they have to fit in there. Cause they're screwed onto carts. Um, and it's just a process that I can't start wrapping my mind around. So I can't answer that question super accurately. But the, more, the majority of things do fit on just your typical semi truck. And then it might take, eh, sometimes it's one, sometimes it's two, sometimes it's like five trucks, depending on the exhibit that go down there. Um, we filled up entire barge, well, like, you know, those big barge containers before with exhibit pieces that we sent down to Panama a few years ago. Um, so it depends from project to project. I want to say Sue was one truck, though. I think we fit the whole thing in pieces on one truck. So it, it, when you're working on Sue, are you just working on Sue? Or can you kind of divvy up your time between different sculptures that you're fabricating at the same time or is it just i'm gotta be locked in on this one until it's done or can you kind of hummingbird your way to kind of different projects that are going on at the same time at the studio you know one of the things i love about this industry the most is that you can never kind of predict um what <laughs> There's like no set rule for that kind of thing. So there are definitely times, you know, when we were working on Sue, we had a deadline and it needed to be done at this time. Um, so a lot of us, when I was working on Sue, I personally 
and a couple others were laser focused on Sue. You know, we couldn't be taken off for anything. We had to get this done. It was the priority in the shop at the time. But we do, we always have a bunch of jobs that are going on. We usually have one big main job and then a bunch of smaller jobs. And right now, um, we have a main job that I'm helping on, but I am flitting around um, from project to project. So I have an animal that I'm sculpting at the moment, but occasionally I'll be taken off to work on the concept art for this exhibit or really quickly we needed this painted or really quickly we needed this sculpted or uh, this client needs this illustration. Can you do this really fast? So sometimes it is a laser focus, but it's only if there's a deadline that's coming up really fast and it's the biggest priority in the shop. Um, but if it's not, if you're working on something that's not a priority, uh, <laughs> uh, you risk the boss coming up to you and being like, Hey, I need you to do this really quick. And you don't know if it's going to take you an afternoon or if it's going to take you like a whole week. So again, it's, you know, it's just another thing that varies from project to project. I was, I was wondering, this is kind of a, a, a big picture, um, artistic philosophy idea, but you know, in the act of creation, it's probably it's probably difficult to get started, but I'm wondering if it's more difficult to walk away and know when you're done. How do you know when it's when you're done with your particular work? And that could be what you have to do for your job or even when you're doing stuff for your own uh, artistic expression. When, as an artist, when do you know it's done? God, I think that is you know, such a joke amongst all the artists that I've ever worked with is that it's never actually done. You, there's just a point where you have to call it quits. You can work on something forever and ever and ever. You know, we joke all the time that like, well, I could ditz around on this for the next month if you wanted me to, and it wouldn't be done. But if you need it by tomorrow, I'll get it done by tomorrow. Um, there kind of, it's just the deadline that determines when you're done with the project. Um, Cause there's always something that you can add or always something that you can change. And especially with what we do, uh, one of the things we run into a lot, and it just happened last week with the dinosaur that we have in the shop right now, um, is that the science changes sometimes halfway through a project. Um, so that might change your definition of, you know, what is done. If you're, you know, my coworkers told me back when they were doing a project that was slightly, just slightly before my time, they were doing pteranodons and, you know, they had sculpted everything and they had molded it. And then they got, you know, an email from the scientists that they were working with that was like, hey, this science has changed. And they had to change the sculpture and they had to recast it and remold it and go through the whole process all over again. Because at the end of the day, it's the scientific accuracy that's the most important thing to us. You know, you don't want to send out something that's not accurate. <laughs> um, so that's that's something else that kind of affects the level of quote unquote doneness of something. Sometimes you get to the end of a project and it's like, well, shoot, we have to repaint this or we have to, we have to add this really quick because this has now changed. Uh, Jim is the fastest sculptor I have ever met in my life, but he's spent the past year working on this tiny little crow sized feathered dinosaur called an Anchiornis because the fossils are so well preserved that the scientist keeps coming back and being like, this feather is different now. This feather is different now, you know, and he has to re-sculpt the feathers probably every couple of weeks. Um, so, you know, at, at, at a certain point, uh, Tim comes up to us and he's like, you have to be done. And sometimes it's like on a crate and it's being wheeled out the door and you're still painting on it. So I don't know if, 
it's quote, things are quote unquote done. I don't know if there's ever really a good time to call it quits because you always just want to keep going. How do you find your muse of artistic creativity? Like where, where do you go to kind of recharge your batteries uh, to, uh, to find new material and be enchanted with the act of creation? How do you do that? You know, I kind of, my passions outside of work are pretty much the exact same as what I do in work. I just, you know, I'm, I just count my lucky stars every single day that what I'm passionate about in my free time is also what I'm passionate about in my job. Um, so kind of, you know, what I do at Blue Rhino is also what I do at home. You know, I'm also at home drawing dinosaurs or, you know, prehistoric animals. So I think like the muse and like the inspiration that I find is the same one that I have at work, which is really just like, uh, you, you know, it seems a little arbitrary to latch yourself on to natural history or like evolution. But at the end of the day, I get super passionate about the fact that we know our roots in our prehistoric world and where we came from um, through art, because the two are just linked and they can never be separated because no matter how much photography develops or how much, you know, whatever, how much... Uh, the rest of the scientific world develops uh art can never be separated from dinosaurs or uh prehistoric life because you can't photograph it you have to draw it and so the only way to educate uh future generations about what something looks like is to draw it or to make it or to build it um so i think I'm going on a little bit of a tangent. I apologize, but I love it. Yeah, keep going. Yeah, the passion for me really comes from, um, you know, I remember being little and going to the Field Museum and seeing Sue and seeing the dinosaurs and seeing the exhibits and just being like, "This is what I'm gonna do when I grow up." And now I'm on kind of the other side of that, where I'm like, I know what I'm building is gonna inspire some little kid or some adult who comes into the museum to want to do the same thing that I'm doing and help progress science and help progress the way that we know our history and we know ourselves. Um, and it's something I just am just like endlessly pa passionate about. Uh, when I worked at the public museum, the thing that I think I missed the most working at Blue Rhino is that I got to walk through the exhibits and I got to watch people's reactions to what we would make. And so anytime, you know, we were upstairs on the staff floors and we'd get frustrated with whatever we were doing, like, oh, I can't believe this is not turning out the way I wanted to, or God, this curator is just <laughs> driving me up a wall. We'd go down into the exhibits and we'd just like walk around and watch people interact and being, you know, you'd hear people be like, oh my gosh, this is so cool. Or wow, I want to like, I want to learn more about this. And it's just, you know, I, again, going off on a tangent maybe, but I think the one way that we're all connected as people without a doubt is where we came from um, and what our natural history is. And I get to teach people about that through art and it's the coolest thing. So, you know, I think that's what keeps me inspired and keeps me going. And that's, that's always my muse. I mean, this is not common where people can find a Venn diagram by which their professional life and their creative life 
have become a full circle and and you yeah. you're like right there but i was wondering like where where do you grow from here or where do you go from here um do you want to stay at the studio or do you see yourself maybe in five or ten years doing something different or is this are you like i'm i'm totally good here that's a good question i've thought about it a lot um you know i've I've been saying for the past four years, I want to be at Blue Rhino until I kind of physically can't do that job anymore, mm. just because it's a very physical job from time to time. Um, just because I just, I love the work and I, you know, I can just be an artist there. But I think if I were to make any kind of step up, I would love to be uh, an exhibit director, which is, um, my old boss was an exhibits director. And uh, they kind of... Um, plan new exhibits and they're in charge of a team and they decide what topic you're going to go on and they work with curators and scientists and um excuse me they work in museums and just kind of build exhibits from the ground up so i think if i did move on if i did go anywhere else uh i would love to be an exhibits director um and have a team of people you know and be the one in charge of uh making exhibits. Um, you know, we make exhibits now and I definitely get that itch scratched now because we sometimes museums come to us and they say, here's a blank box. Um, please fill it with things. And, uh, my boss will pull a few of us in to plan what goes into that blank box. Um, so I definitely get that fulfillment at work right now, but yeah, I think if I did do any kind of step up, it would be that, but that would probably require going back to school for museum studies. Um, so that would be decades probably in the future. Um, usually people that have those roles are, you know, they've been in the industry for a long time. They're usually, I think my boss was really young and he, to be exhibit director, he was like 45. So that's usually kind of end career goals. So we'll see that might be decades off. That's, that's so cool. So Maddie, you've been so generous with your time. I've learned a ton. This has been super interesting. And I was wondering if you could leave us today with some tips for success for current Wildcats. Oh man, just do what you love. I When I started that journey, it was so niche. It was so tiny. I didn't even know <laughs> museum art was a thing until I was like graduating. Um, but if it feels right, just, just go for it. Regardless of, you know, the people, especially going to art school, I was told all the time, I was told by like people checking me out in grocery stores, like, oh, you're going to art school. You know, there's like no jobs in that. Right. So don't just, just do what you're passionate about. You will be ultimately so much happier if you just do what drives you and what you're passionate about. Uh, I think that's a rule that I've tried to follow. Um, since graduation. Ah, that's so great. Well, Maddie, thank you so much. This has been great and best of luck. Thank you very much. Yeah, this was super fun. I mean, I could rant at you for another hour about this. <laughs> I, I know I could do it as well. This is yeah. Great. <laughs> but yeah, thank you for the opportunity. It was great to talk to you. Thanks for listening. You can follow We Go Places on iTunes and Google Podcasts. Just search We Go Vox. That's We Go, V-O-X, or search on Facebook for We Go Places Podcast.